Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with depth psychologist and author Mary Watkins and host Michael Lerner. Mary Watkins, welcome to the new school at Commonweal and to the Omega Resilience work here. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, Mary, what I know is that uh, you were the chair of the Deaf Psychology Program at Pacifica and co-chair of the Community Liberation Indigenous and Eco-Psychology Specialization there, as well as coordinator of community and ecological field work. Um, Tell me where you are professionally now. (laughs) Well, I um, liberated myself from the administrative demands of Pacifica Mm -hmm. about two years ago. And now, um, for the first time in, oh, 50 years, I have the opportunity to read and write and speak at my own pace without as many interruptions, which is very, very sweet. Um, Some of the things I'm doing are, um, I visit people in detention prison who are um, seeking asylum and do psychological evaluations um, for their cases. And I do some teaching in a prison near us, Lompoc, um, federal prison, um, and some other kind of prison education work. The rest of the time, I'm free to learn, which is what I love doing most, and then writing, which is a way of kind of giving back. Well, wonderful. I'm glad you're liberated. Speaking of liberation, uh, your husband, who is a distinguished American philosopher uh, who uh, has worked at Pacifica and... uh, at Stony Brook University, where he's just retiring now, uh, and has uh, published extensively on phenomenology, philosophical psychology, and the philosophy of space and place. Um, He's widely cited in contemporary continental philosophy, and his work has been very influenced by Immanuel Kant, uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, Edward Husserl, and Martin Heidegger. So um, I've been looking at both of your publications, and um, as you said over lunch, you are both inveterate writers and (laughs) readers and thinkers. Yes, (laughs) we spend a lot of time quietly at those tasks, Mm -hmm. and we both seem to think in book-length projects. Yeah, Yeah. I understand that. Um, I I wanted to actually ask you at the start... um, so much of your work and your husband's work overlap. So, for example, I have three of your books. Uh, one is called Up Against the Wall, Reimagining the U.S.-Mexico Border, and we'll talk about that by Edward Casey and Mary Watkins. Uh, then I have your book Toward Psychologies of Liberation, which you wrote with Helene Shulman. And then I have your also remarkable book, Mutual Accompaniment and the Creation of the Commons. Um, And so I wanted to ask you, as you and your husband have sort of divided up and worked together on on different projects, 
is there a significant philosophical differentiation between your work and his, or is it an almost entirely compatible? Um, well, the one book that we collaborated on, I think we did take rather different tacks. Um, mm. He's very interested in um, the physical presence of the wall at the border, the, his, the history of that. He's a, a place person. He really put place on the philosophical map. It was a, it was a category that was left out, much as it was in psychology. Um, and I, I'm going more into the relationships between people at the border and in our own towns and cities where we live amongst many, many different kinds of borders, how to, how to imagine doing that differently with one another. Mm -hmm. uh, as you know, uh, at Commonweal, we've uh, been very aware of the border, and actually one of our projects um, has been to support an extraordinary sanctuary in Tijuana where 1,200 to 1,600 migrants uh, live. Yes. In a space, an amazing space created by a, a minister down there. Um, and it's actually one of my favorite Commonweal projects is mm. that we're doing that. So um, to me, the, the question of borders, as we talked about them over lunch, seemed to me to be one of the most profound and tragic issues of how the global poly crisis is unfolding. You know, as broadly speaking, with climate change and everything else that's happening and political violence and everything else, uh, billions of people in the global south are being uprooted from places they can't live or, or else are so hopeless that they see no future for themselves there. Mm -hmm. And so they're all trying desperately to get to the global north or get somewhere. And, um, and global northern countries, uh, not only Europe and the United States, but other parts of the world that are at least somewhat better, um, are facing these influxes of migrants. So um, from my perspective, as someone who would love to see people treated compassionately, uh, it's such a... I don't see a solution at a large level mm -hmm. to the issue of all the migrants who want to find safe refuge. Uh, and we talked about this over mm -hmm. lunch. Um, and yet, what I deeply believe, and I think is part of what you've studied, is how at an individual level, at a community level, do we find common cause? Do we accompany people who are trying to make this transition? Mm -hmm. But there's this deep tension between how do we greet people who are suffering and, um, and how do the countries of the global north um, accommodate untold hundreds of millions of people? Mm -hmm. How do you hold that tension? Well, if I can take a historical detour sure. um, to England and Ireland, where 
the commons were enclosed, mm-hmm. where people were, by, by dint of violence, forced off their land into the cities. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the key things that I want to bring up is that when whole communities were forced off the land, all the surrounding communities were told by the landholders that you mustn't shelter anybody who's fleeing or you'll be killed. And that attitude got brought to this country. If, we, if you look at the early Puritan communities, um, people were not allowed to house the stranger in their towns. In a city like Boston, they had people called warners who would go around and see who was here that they didn't recognize and tell them that they had to leave um, within 14 days. And their reasoning was they didn't want um, the community of people who were living there to have to fund and support the people in need who who were coming in. So this is a... This is a very, very old um, part of the way that we think about keeping our own community safe by keeping other people out. Um, But in the end, are we really safe when we keep each other out? Um, At at the deepest kind of spiritual level, I don't think we are. And and there I, I think about... Um, what Jack Derrida said about hospitality, that unless you allow the stranger in the door without asking his name or where she came from, you're locked out of the hearth, out of the heart of your own home. You'll never have access to your home if the stranger's kept out. Now, you're, you're posing the, the wide-scale mm-hmm. <laughs> issue, but... What will it look like if we don't organize to create small spots of sanctuary where there's some mutuality and um, really sharing of, of resources, both material resources but also cultural resources with one another? So it, it yes, it looks impossible at the large scale, and yet we, we must do what we can do you know, whether that's you're at Port Authority and you're, you're greeting people coming off the bus from Texas or you're creating a halfway house where people can stay until they get asylum um, or you're developing these opportunities on, on the other side of the border, which is what, what you've been able to do and, and which a number of people and organizations are, are being led to do, which I think is is very hopeful, and it would need to happen not just at the U.S.-Mexico border, but um, would need to happen in El Salvador and Honduras and Panama and places where we have inflicted historical violence um, through in order to build our own resources. Mm-hmm. We owe something back to those communities, and it is it, it isn't the military <laughs> that we owe them back. It's building the resources so that in the light of climate change, as sustainable a life as possible um, can come into being. You've actually met some of the people coming off the buses at Port Authority. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Well, 
the, the city of New York has a sanctuary policy that's really pretty radical. It says anybody who wants to be housed will be housed. Now, a lot of people, including the mayor, are not all that excited about that policy, but that's the one at stake. However, they didn't put resources toward getting the people from the bus to the shelters that have been set up, both the shelters that are positive environments and the ones that have been hastily built that are less than positive. And so it was a group of um, citizens who came together, led by some, some wonderful people, that began to mobilize everyday people in New York. Um, very well organized, come in for two hours, four hours, this is what you're going to do. Um, people at different, different um, jobs along that line, people to take people to the shelters, people to make sure you have the right clothes, do you have diapers for your baby, do you have food? Um, really trying to say we could be a city of hospitality um, if, if ordinary people and not um, city government um, mobilized. And that's been happening now for almost a year, and it's, it's pretty remarkable. Um, so remarkable that it, it parallels with the story that you or Susan told at lunch, that a, a family came back to the sanctuary in Mexico. Um, there are people who come back from the shelters to Port Authority building hoping to find the volunteers because they haven't yet settled and they, they don't know who to turn to for, for resources. Mm -hmm. um, many people have taken people into their homes on the short, in the short term. Um, it's been heartbreaking to see how many children uh, are, are caught up in this. Mm. It seems like you've been concerned with marginalized people and their situations for a long time. Mm -hmm. Where did it start? Well, um, I remember I, I used to spend some time in the summer times in Memphis, Tennessee. I was brought up in New York, um, but both sides of my family are from Memphis. And there, um, there was a, a woman who had helped my, my grandmother's family for many, many years. And I remember being maybe about eight years old, and we were taking her home. And then all of a sudden, we passed into a part of Memphis that I had never seen before. There were more like shacks instead of houses. There was just dirt roads instead of real roads, um, and I was like, well, what is this? What is this? Because I, I really hadn't seen that before, but I think it began to um, have me ask a lot of questions about how this had come about, um, and I found myself in two very different narratives, one offered by my mother, one offered by the New York Public School, um, around um, the Civil War and slavery. So the, the black-white um, relationship uh, really held my attention um, 
you know, through, through my education. It wasn't until I found myself in California that I even gave a second thought really about the border. Um, and that was, you know, I only got to California about 27 years ago. Um, I found myself in Santa Barbara c- completely unable to decipher what I was seeing. If you get up early in Santa Barbara, go downtown, you see primarily Mexican people walking quickly and with their bicycles going to and fro, getting to work. Um, And then you come gradually to understand that they're 40% of the town, um, that many of them are really in hiding while trying to to make a living because they don't have their documents. Um, And that's what began to to move me toward the border so I could try to understand what's happening in my own town here, that there's that we're living in a kind of an apartheid situation between the Anglo people and the Mexican, Mexican Mexican-American folks. Yeah, but it's been an abiding concern. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I was reading back through some of the different situations where you've uh, lived and worked and and visited with people. And um, give us a sense of what the stages in that journey of your abiding concern with marginalized people have been. Where did it first really land beyond Mm -hmm. your experience uh, uh, in Tennessee that you just described? But as you developed, what was the sequence of places and situations where your concern with marginalized people developed? Mm -hmm. Well, I trained as a psychologist, um, and um, I specialized in children and also um, working with people diagnosed with schizophrenia. Um, So I believe both of those groups are somewhat marginalized themselves, including children, particularly children with... um, who have gone through seriously distressing situations. Um, So when I first got out of graduate school, um, that was the work I was doing. Um, With with children? With children and with um, adult people diagnosed with schizophrenia. And, but then I had an experience where I was, I began to have nightmares of um, nuclear war. This was in the early 80s in Boston. And there was an anti-nuclear movement beginning. Helen Caldicott was there, the Australian um, physician. Joanna Macy was there often. Um, And I had studied, you know, a, a fairly individualistic psychology that... Um, where to think about people getting well, you had a kind of very narrow focus on what you were looking at, Um, the person, their inner life, their relation to their parents, and maybe a few significant others. There were many questions that weren't asked about miseducation, politics, neighborhoods, relationship to nature, et cetera, ancestral um, history. Um, So I... I began to work on the weekends with um, 
anti-nuclear activists um, in, in groups. And that gradually um, evolved into working with social justice um, activists around issues of burnout. And what I noticed was on the weekend, all these issues that were left out of psychotherapy um, were very deep in the hearts of these people, and they were crying, they were angry, upset. Um, and when you got back to the quiet of the consulting room, the issues from the, the larger world hardly ever came in because of how both the therapist and the, the person you were working with were, was defining what would constitute movement toward well-being. Um, and I realized there's, some, there's a disjunct here going on. And that's when I, I found Paulo Freire's work from Brazil and began to study you know, what he calls the pedagogy of the oppressed. For those who don't know Freire's work, how would you describe it? Yeah. Well, for me, I will say it was the missing half of what's called depth psychology. Um, Freire was... Uh, an educator, and he um, was he was enlisted to um, help. Um, I don't know. Was it twenty million people in Northeast Brazil learn how to read and write? And he said, "Well, it isn't. Yes, you need to learn to read and write, but you also need to learn to read the circumstances in which your life is unfolding." How can we meet together in a group setting? Because he believed people could, could help each other learn and that there would be more intelligence coming through the whole group. Um, how, can, how can we learn to decipher the social situation that has unfolded to produce the kind of issues that are affecting your well-being, your family's well-being, your neighborhood's well-being. And he called that process conscientization, the raising of critical consciousness. But he said, well, that's not enough. I mean, we can, we can, we can begin to understand how all the structures have fit together so that your family is living on the edge of a sugar plantation without any land to grow food for your children. So your children are going to work at an early age and not getting to school. Um, but what about what you dream? What, what do you like really deeply desire for yourself and your family, your neighborhood? And he called that process annunciation. So he said, once you understand how things begin to fit together, you can begin to dream them otherwise and then join in solidarity to begin to, to shift um, the, the reality. Was, and his work was banned for... A very long time in Latin America. So he was he was being quite successful at the literacy movement, and the very progressive president at that time, um, you know, placed great resources into that work. And then the military dictatorship came, and he had to go into exile mm. for many many years. Um, you know, I had a Fulbright to Brazil just as um, uh, just as the military dictatorship. Took place, yeah. Uh -huh. Just as Castelo Branco took took power, uh -huh. I arrived in Brazil. Wow! And I was uh, a stringer for the Washington Post, so I was reporting for the Post. Um, 
So I, what did you witness? Excuse me. What did you witness? Well, um, what did I witness? Uh, uh, interesting little story. There was a an American general uh, who uh, a military attaché. I'm not sure he was a general at that point. Who showed up repeatedly in different countries where the United States was participating in engineering yes. uh, transformations to of progressive democracies to dictatorship. And my father, who was a journalist, um, had a connection with this um, military uh, strategist. And I remember going to his apartment and meeting him. Uh -huh. And I didn't make all the connections at the time because I uh, was not savvy enough to do that. But I remember that. What I mostly <clears throat> witnessed, I, I was... There was a lot, I mean, this was uh, 1965, 66. I was just out of college. Yes. And I, there's so much I missed because I was not politically or spiritually prepared. I mean, there was an amazing spiritual healer in the uh, favelas of Rio at that time. Uh, and had I known, I could have gone to see him. Uh-huh. So both spiritually and politically, I was, in a sense, uninformed, unformed, and I won't say naive, but just much more practical about as a reporter. Yes. About, okay, Carlos Lacerda, who was the governor of Rio, who I'd come down to study, uh -huh. went into exile. Yes. And uh, Castelo Branco came into power. Yes. Um, so I traveled all over the country, including the Northeast, but, uh, but I didn't have an informed political analysis. Did I didn't know, I didn't understand the significance of Palafuri's work. So there was a uh -huh. lot that I just, a lot of my life seems to have been, in a funny way, to be behind the curve. Well, we're always uh, trying to catch up, right? Yeah. So a lot of my life, it's I've been catching up. Yeah. In a lot of things, I've been ahead of the curve. But in a lot of other ways, I've been behind the curve sometimes. Well, there's yeah. so much social amnesia. We have to work right. our way through. Um, there's an... Um, <clears throat> after Hill, James Hillman died, there was a a gathering in Sao Paulo, near Sao Paulo at the university in Campinas to celebrate his life. And I gave a talk there about Paulo Freire, the, the overlaps between Paulo Freire and James Hillman's work. And I looked out at the audience and there were many people crying. And I was like, well, why, why are people crying? It turned out that Freire had been one of the masterminds of, of creating that campus and that they had you know, really um, had to disregard him during the exile and even somewhat after that. But many of the people in the audience had been young um, when he was at Campinas and were remembering 
what his teaching meant to them in terms of revisioning education from being what he called a banking-centered model where um, the teacher knows what you should learn and she deposits it into your head versus a dialogical method of coming to learn with one another. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Mary Watkins and host Michael Lerner. Now, you just mentioned James Hillman, and um, uh, I understand from our colleague Susan Gaylock-Husum, who brought us together here, uh, and we spoke about it over lunch, that uh, you first met Hillman when you were 23 and remained friends with him for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. Um, So we'll go down that uh, path in a little bit, but how do you see the overlap between Paolo Freire and Hillman? What was your paper? What What's your central insight about <laughs> wow, I that? I wish I had reread the paper before I came. Yeah. I think it's probably much more specific than what I can conjure now. But um, they were both they were both interested in dialogue and in um, opening up uh, the sense of the individual to the connection with both the wider world in terms of, you know, politics, social things, but also um, to a sense of, of what Hillman would call soul. You know, Hillman had an idea that, of, that we had co-opted the sense of soul as an individual possession, like I'm going to work on my soul, right? Um, when we really needed to return to this more ancient concept of, are all being in in soul already, um, and I don't really remember the rest of what right, I said. That's fine. <laughs> but what what um, so for our viewers and listeners, let's just take a few minutes to talk about who James Hillman was. I'll I'll start with my piece of it. I've been fascinated by Hillman for many years. I've done many New School conversations about Hillman with his wife, Pat Berry, with his uh, biographer, Dick Russell, uh, with his son, Lawrence Hillman. And Mm -hmm. so I've been really fascinated by his work. I actually also have to say that in some fundamental ways, I differ with him. Mm -hmm. And the place that I differ with him is that Hillman, um, who, as you know, um, came out of uh, a fairly wealthy Jewish family on the East Coast and ended up uh, at the Jung Institute in Zurich and uh, was the kind of star uh, student, perhaps the best student that ever went there, joined the faculty and then was um, run out of the institute for having an affair with a minister's wife who came after him, even though many of the faculty were having affairs at the time with students and so on. But uh, he got run out and went to London and um, discovered the great uh, collection of images that had actually been taken from Nazi Germany to mm. England for mm. safekeeping and, and discovered the work of Marsilio Ficino Mm-hmm. and the whole work on Ficino's uh, astrological psychology and was able to situate his own work 
in a lineage that preceded Freud and Jung and was known as sort of the, quote, bad boy of archetypal psychology, to give my <laughs> little gloss on uh-huh. it. Uh, astonishing figure. But I think where I differ with him, and I'd be fascinated in your thoughts about this, is that Hillman abhorred uh, uh, psychologies of self-improvement or ascent. That he said that, yeah. you know, there's both spirit and soul, and the spirit tends upward uh-huh. toward the divine, toward, yeah. and the soul stays close to the body. He was very clear that he spoke for the soul. Uh-huh. And that when the soul is abandoned by spirit and it ascends, it feels lonely, it feels aggrieved, it begins to express itself, its unhappiness with being abandoned. Uh-huh. So he had this fundamental view, right, mm-hmm. that psychologies of ascent were not what interested him. Well, guess what? Psychologies of ascent interest me <laughs> yes. as well as soul yes. psychologies. Yes. And it seems to me that the balanced view is to acknowledge both soul yeah. and spirit yeah. and to recognize that we all have within us both that profound part of us that stays close to the body, but also that there's a part of us that does want uh, transcendence. So yeah. with that little strange gloss on yes. Hillman, yeah. uh, tell, yeah. tell me how you hold Hillman's work. Yeah, and for people who don't know who James Hillman is, he, yeah. he was a Jungian um, psychologist who who doesn't who wasn't really trying to form his own school but ended up having a branch of depth psychology called archetypal psychology um, so when I was studying phenomenology um, when I was 24 I came across this essay by Maurice Merleau-Ponty um, the child's relation to the other which in the last few pages uh, talks about the development of, of love. And I was like, development? I never thought about like studying developmental psychology, but this is like one of the most fascinating things I've ever read. So <laughs> when I went on to get my PhD at Clark, I, I was kind of a dual person, developmental psychology and um, clinical psychology. And the person I studied with, it was Bernard Kaplan, Bernie Kaplan, and he um, he understood that developmental psychology was kind of a hoax because what it really was was people uh, a theorist had something that they really valued, like Piaget valued a certain kind of logical thought, and then he would turn to his own children and watch how that particular kind of thought came online and um, talk about that developmentally. So Bernie said, you know, developmental psychology doesn't need to be studying what is, it could be studying what might be. You could outline where where you want it to go and then try to figure out what would need to happen developmentally to help you get there, what kind of obstacles would, would you need to remove, et cetera. So this was really interesting to me. And to Hillman, this was not interesting. At all? No, because he, he abhorred develop, developmental notions. Yes. Yeah, and developmental psychology. Um, 
So we had quite a few conversations about that. Um, I was never able to convince him of any value in it whatsoever. Um, but you held your ground on that. Yes, I held my ground because I could, I could see, you know, I was looking at things like, um, how do people move from being passive to being active with regard to their social justice concerns, for instance? You know, I'm, I'm still interested in pathways, you know, how you get from here to there, um, describing both how people actually do it and how they might do it. Um, but he, he forgave me my, um, my lack of discernment in what I was doing, <laughs> and we continued from there. But yes, I mean, I think developmental psychology is also an upward, an upward move mm -hmm. in, many, in, many, in, in this kind of ideal way that I'm talking about. You spoke of, of Jean Piaget's work on cognitive development, and obviously also there was Eric Erickson on psychosocial development. There was Kohlberg on moral development. There's Piaget on cognitive development. There's Gilligan on the development of women as a different path. You cite Gilligan quite a, a bit yes. in your work. So, well, I'm, I'm grateful to hear that, that despite your long and, and deep friendship, uh, uh, um, that you, um, with Hillman, that you uh, stood by your interest <laughs> in, uh, in I had no choice. <laughs> psychologies of ascent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, you know, some of the things that Hillman talks about remain really mysterious to me. And, I mean, mysterious in a good sense. Actually, you mentioned that you were drawn to Hillman because uh, you had helped save a woman who was about to commit suicide and somebody turned you on to Hillman's incredible essay on, on, uh, on suicide in the soul. Yes. Which is so striking because the, the burden of that essay is that we're all so focused on saving the, the person who's trying to commit suicide, mm -hmm. but perhaps the soul needs the suicide. Yeah, yeah. And so I mean, when I read that, I thought, what a courageous thing to say. Yes, and yes. And there, I really agree with Hillman. Profoundly, right, actually. Right, and that, that insight is coupled with another insight there, which I think is very profound. And it only happens, as I was telling Susan, toward the middle of the book, the first part of the book is a little more prosaic. But you get to the part where he says, if, you, if you're the therapist and the person is, is being um, submerged by death images, the worst thing you could do is to distract them from that because their life energy is coming from their connection to those images, even though you, as the outsider, may see them those images as being very potentially destructive for the person. So your task is to, he didn't use this word, but it's to accompany the person where they are in exactly what it is that's unfolding and not trying to... Um, insert more appealing images that are appealing to you, you know, or, um, or, or lead them away in various ways. Because at that time, if you took that position, um, your supervisor would say, oh, you're encouraging them to commit suicide. And no, that wouldn't be what you would be doing. You'd just whiff them in it. 
See, to me, this is one of the most profound issues that I've worked with, you know, in 37 years of working in the Commonwealth Cancer Health Program with people with advanced cancer and and talking with friends like B.J. Miller, who's a great um, uh, uh, practitioner who works with end-of-life issues. And the issue, which is so controversial, is um, whether people with a life-threatening illness who have had enough uh, should be allowed to take themselves out. Yes. Now, I call that, some people call it physician-assisted suicide. I call it self-deliverance. Yes. And, uh, but it's not only about people with a life-threatening illness. No. And it's such a fundamental question. And it's debated, as you probably know, in philosophy. Uh, there are some philosophers who hold that you can measure the level of a civilization by its attitude towards self-deliverance. Mm. That, that, no, I didn't know that, that a truly enlightened civilization recognizes the human right uh-huh. to decide when it's time to depart. Yes. Yes. And it's such a slippery slope because if you do acknowledge that, then the fact is that there will be a lot of elderly people who will say, you know, I don't want to be a burden to my children and I'm wasting our family inheritance and it would just be better for everybody if I disappeared. So that's the slippery slope argument. Yes. And it's very, very real. Yes. You know, And you think of all the people who have these immense depressive episodes, right? right? Where they want to kill themselves. Yes. And if they could get to the other side of it, they might remember that they wanted to live. That's right. right. But so if you follow the Hillman route, mm-hmm. it's like, hey, this is what they're ima- imagining, so on and so forth. I will just accompany them. I will not try to rescue them. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me, I mean, I know for myself that I absolutely believe in the human right to take yourself out. Mm-hmm. Whether you're sick or not, it's just if you've had enough, mm-hmm. you know, for whatever reason. But I also recognize there's a very profound difference between my belief in that and whether that's actually good social policy uh-huh. because of the slippery slope. Yes. Because of all the reasons why, uh, you know, all the states that are now legalizing compassion and dying, I absolutely support that. Mm-hmm. And yet, and yet, you know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. What do you think about that? Well, let's take up the case of very, very deep depression. Mm-hmm. Because I, I, by accompany, I don't mean um, just standing by, you know, until the person kills themselves. I think that there was something more in what, in what Hillman was advocating, that, that it's very rare that we, each of us, finds a person to be um, in what I'll call our innermost, utmost, um, part of ourself, where all of our self-doubts, our self-hatred, perhaps our um, disappointment in life, reside, and there's there's the potentiality for for a a kind of trust in life developing out of a relationship with somebody who's willing to go there with you. So it's not an it's not an inevitable slide into no, death. No, you're willing to accompany them wherever it takes them. 
Yes. Right. And so whether it takes them, and the theory would be they've actually got a better chance of surviving if you are willing to. Yes, that. rather than being alone, right. which is where many now, people are. An example of what you've done so much work on when you talk about accompaniment? Yes and no. Uh -huh. <laughs> so um, it, we all have instances of accompanying each other in our lives, you know, mm -hmm. mothers with children and fathers mm -hmm. with sons and um, ourselves with our parents and friends. Um, but it, I'm also in, in that book talking about what I'm calling eco-psychosocial accompaniment, which is trying to read the, the social historical context that surrounds um, the person at, at a particular point. I think in this occasion with somebody with deep depression, that may be relevant, it might not be relevant. Um, depending on where they're... I see what you're saying. Yeah. But so the Hillman accompaniment would just be at the individual level accompaniment. But yeah. as you say, eco-psychosocial, that sounds like you're bringing in the equivalent of Paolo Freire's approach to yes. say, to accompany you here, uh, I accept that wherever you're going, but let's look at it in terms of the structures that envelop you and cause you to think and so Yes, that. yes, right. Mm. But Hillman, he also, I mean, talks obviously about the soul of the world, the soul of the earth. And most interesting to me, he talks about the souls of cities, yeah. the souls of cars and objects. <laughs> Toasters. And I can go with him in the soul of the earth. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I can go with him to the soul of the city, that, you know, it's not just nature, but yeah. cities themselves. But he challenges me when he talks about the souls of cars and things. Yeah, yeah, well, me what too. What do you do with that? Well, it comes up first in this beautiful essay of his, um, The Thought of the Heart and the Return of the Soul to the World, kind of two-part piece, um, where he talks about the soul of toasters. And I, I can remember being in the audience when he first gave that and like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I won't go with souls no. of toasters. No. You could but, make a t-shirt. Toasters don't have souls. <laughs> I'm not going there. I mean, he, he was always um, very dedicated to an aesthetic sensibility, to, mm -hmm. to the idea of beauty. Um, so I think some of that came, came from there. But, but what he was doing in that essay um, is very important, even if we don't agree about the toaster, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because he's really opening the door of the consulting room and saying, look, you know, this, this little private preserve here mm -hmm. is not adequate to the situation that we're in. Um, so that's where that, he overlaps with Freire, right? Yes, yes, exactly. That they were both saying the consulting room is not yeah. enough, individual psychotherapy is not enough. Yeah. We have to open the doors of the consulting room yes. and bring into account all the structures that make you feel you have no power, you can't give voice to, so on. I think he was... He was more inclined to go toward beauty. I think I was, at that moment, more inclined to go toward justice. And then there was a, a lovely moment around 2000, 2001, 
where he gave a paper in Santa Barbara, UCSB, at the archetype, I think it was 30th Archetypal Psychology Festival or something, where he, he claimed three pillars, um, beauty, destiny, and justice. Beauty. Destiny and justice. Beauty, destiny, and justice. Yeah. Are the three pillars of his work or mm-hmm. of life or what? Well, of, of what he wanted a psychology to aim, aim for, to be founded on, really. Um, so if destiny, you know, that was his sense that um, we can look back now at certain points in our life and we can see that we were always on this path but we didn't know at the time, right? We, we, we were heading someplace, but it was, um, it was lost on us. Well, let's think about that. I just want to, let's go quiet with that for a second, because I just want to add that. So beauty, destiny, and justice. So what I'm trying to do with that, maybe you can help me, is that It seems to me the ancient triad is some version of love, wisdom, and will, right? Love of the heart, wisdom of the mind, will, uh, the the service of the hands. It's heart, head, and hands, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So that's the ancient triad. Now, um, that I find in, in many, many traditions, but it takes many different forms. So, you know, Freud said it's love and work. Rollo May said it's love and will. Uh, those dyadic uh, versions of this. But um, you also find the uh, Platonic tradition of truth, beauty, and goodness, mm-hmm. right? So, beauty, and then there are the, uh, the muses. And in the tradition of the muses, the the muses were um, beauty, love, and ecstasy or release. And the idea was that beauty evokes love and love results in transformation or release. Mm -hmm. So I'm taking Hillman's triad of of beauty, uh, justice, and... Destiny. Destiny. And I'm wondering, I mean, obviously they both have beauty. Uh, destiny probably feels like it fits into the will thing because it's where you're actually going. Uh, and then justice, you know, to me it's so profound, that great line from the Bible of what does the Lord God ask of us, but... Uh, to um, to love justice and walk humbly with the Lord our God. There are three terms there as well. So I can't move the Hillman triad into those ancient ones, but I love it. It's it's beauty, justice, and destiny, and destiny, and the destiny piece fits deeply with. This whole idea of, of the kernel that unfolds yes. in our lives and the great work he did on that. Yeah. 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 But what you was know, it wasn't, you know, just Rogers and the dyadic folks with love. It was also Paulo Freire and Franz Fanon. Um, 
the revolutionaries also speak of, of love as their cornerstone. Mm-hmm. There's just a lot to be said for seeing love as the, the fundamental force. Um, I mean, not only in the human world, but for those of us who dare to imagine that the universe is not inert but alive mm-hmm. and that um, that material reality is not primary but consciousness is primary, which is an interesting thought. Yes. And um, that the universe is set up to look for fertile planets and plant seeds of life wherever it finds them. Yes. And... Uh, that the anthropic principle, you know about that, is um, that somehow the universe is designed to support life, uh-huh. and therefore um, the universe is designed to um, express love because mm-hmm. uh, everything in the universe serves a purpose, and if organic life exists, it doesn't exist by accident, and mm-hmm. it's seeded wherever it can grow, and then with with Barry, uh, we can say that we are the eyes that look back at the universe. Uh-huh. So anyway, there's a whole yeah, line yeah. of thought there. It gives us a little relief from the poly crisis yeah, it to gives think us a that. Relief. Well, the yeah. poly crisis is just: will this species on this planet right. make it to being a mature uh, planetary civilization, and in all likelihood, part of um, of a network of mature planetary civilizations scattered through the universe, who knows? But I, I tend to like to think that. <laughs> yeah. But since you knew uh, Hillman for how long? Um, 45 years. Maybe. 25 years? 45. 45 years. Yeah. How would you describe the James Hillman you knew? What? How... Mm-hmm. How would you, for because I'm so fascinated uh, <laughs> by Hillman, um, how would you describe the human being? Um, well, in terms of his relationship to me, I'm just so grateful. I'm mm-hmm. so um, grateful that he took the time to notice me as a young woman, writer, and... Um, potential scholar, you know, um, that he uh, saw my work and published it, um, that he, he listened to what I had struggled with in my own family of origin that made life difficult. Um, and, you know, it was very, I was very happy I was never his patient you know, so that that wasn't clouding our relationship. Um, but he, 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 um, I felt like he saw me, you know, and that uh, I, that we enjoyed, you know, being, being with each other and mm. having a friendship across generations. And um, yes, he could be quite critical early on, that he's well known in in talks where audience members would say something and he would end up saying something quite curt and dismissive. 
and hurt their feelings, you know. Um, But he really mellowed as he got older. And say like when he was 75, if a person made that very same remark, he would just chuckle and, um, and, and give them a kind of a loving response. Hmm. It, um, so that piece of being, you know, super discerning and throwing out, um, making people feel ridiculous for things that they might say, which made sometimes the audience feel a little uptight, <laughs> um, softened. And hmm. he, was, he, was, he was just happy to think alongside. Um, he really made a gravitation from delivering talks which of course was the thing you did at that time also, to being in conversation. And um, as Susan will remember, in our program, he would come every year, and at first it was talks, and gradually it was conversations by the fire where people could bring up various things. He might read a paragraph that he wrote, but not a whole paper, um, so that they could have more fun with it, you know, like we're having. (laughs) Yeah, so I I found him... very, very loving and mm-hmm. generous, quite generous to me. Can you describe uh, for us the moment uh, in the class when he <laughs> came down the aisle and picked you out? Yeah, okay, so I, I'm in Zurich. I'm the youngest person there, and I'm the shyest person, most introverted person. And I've been going to a psychodrama group at the clinic am Zurgberg with my friend Robbie Basnack and Robbie Basnack is in therapy with James Hillman and Robbie's writing a novel about two lesbians and I'm writing a book about waking dreams um, and so when we go have a beer with each other we share this and one day um, during one of the revisioning psychology lectures in the intermission um, Jim, which we called him then, um, whom I'd never met, is walking down the room, the lecture hall, um, and he looks like he's coming toward me, but I know he's not, even though, of course, I've read everything he's ever written now um, and had meant to go to Zurich to study with him. Um, and then he stops at me. Yikes. <laughs> and so he says, well, Robbie told me that you're writing a book on waking dreams. That's interesting. Would you be willing to share with me a few chapters? Because I'm, as you know, editing um, Spring Journal. Maybe, maybe I'll have to read them first. Maybe we could print one of your chapters. So for a 23-year-old, that's really good news. Really, really good news. So that's how we, we started. And I remember a couple of weeks later, he called me up, and he, he was not so happy I had done um, the wrong style of references. And um, how was I ever going to get published if I did that? So that, that whipped me into shape. <laughs> You're listening to a TNS conversation with Mary Watkins and host Michael Lerner. And his wife at that time, Pat Berry, was the editor of the series, you came to know Pat. Yes, she was my editor, um, and then we became friends. And later you knew Margot, his last one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And as you know, I did a conversation with the New School with Pat Berry, which uh, 
was extraordinary. And anybody interested in Hillman should really listen to it. Great. It broke new ground. And Dick Russell, his biographer, who you just told me is bringing out the second volume yeah. of, the bi- of the biography. And I deeply look forward to talking to yes. Dick Russell about it. I mean, I can't let go of, of uh, Hillman. Um, I have uh, the, the, the volume that um, uh, Blue Fire, the selections, yes. I, I keep that near my bed. And yeah. there's a beautiful quote from Robert Bly on the cover that says, in many ways, James Hillman is the most inventive philo- uh, psychologist that uh, America has had since William James. And Bly says, I read something in him almost every day. And I do the same thing, you know. So I have this argument with him, but uh, it's um, contending with someone who um, actually touches me very deeply. I think we might have this in common, that you can really be into Hillman and not give up the ascending spirit. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay, Hillman speaks for the soul. Yeah. Fabulous. You know, because he is the soul's defender, he has that incredible insight, undiluted by any ascent psychology. Mm-hmm. But we can hold ascent psychologies yes. along with yes. the depth of his awareness. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I was I was very moved early on by the um, Catholic worker movement, yes. you know, and by Dorothy um, Day. Yeah, Dorothy Day, um, and these. This would have been a concern that would, wouldn't have, you know, or my reading Thomas Merton from <laughs> front mm-hmm. to back. It, it, that wasn't something that that he was interested in. So there were there were places where we we really met very well, and you know, lots of concerns that we each had that weren't you know the same. You were, you were friends across yeah. your differences. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, wonderful. So let's come back to your work again. Um, these, these three books um, that I have, uh, Mutual Accompaniment and the Creation of the Commons, uh, Up Against the Wall, Reimagining the U.S.-Mexico Border, and Towards Psychologies of Liberation, um, so let's just take towards psychologies of liberation. Um, tell us what you were trying to achieve with this book. <laughs> wow. Well, from the from the very first course I ever had in psychology, I had a deep disappointment with academic psychology, and so I kept trying to find a psychology that I could really get behind and. Um, ended up like needing to put a number of things together to to get there, and th- this book is is really trying to take um, some of the wisdom out of um, Latin American approaches to spiritual and psychological liberation, and place them alongside of of certain aspects of depth psychology. So, as, as I've said, I was deeply in, inspired by Paulo Freire's work and could see it as um, a methodology of, of working with people that was almost completely left out of um, cl- clinical psychology. And, you know, some of the t- 
liberation psychology was named by a man named Ignacio Martín Barro, who was a, Je a Spanish Jesuit who went to El Salvador um, and lived there during the Civil War. But he went to the University of Chicago for yet another doctorate. He had, he had one before then. He studied social psychology. And when he got back to El Salvador, that was in the throes of this violent conflict, he said that nothing he had learned at University of Chicago was helpful to him in terms of understanding people's psychological state and in understanding their resilience. And that because it was so highly individualistically oriented, it was really maybe useful to a certain part of the population um, in Europe and the US, but that each particular location needs to evolve its own um, and recognize its own cultural gifts in creating an approach to psychological and community well-being. And so we're trying to bring into focus in this book that, that task um, that really then decenters from um, the professional and the expert uh, and is much more uh, uh, aiming toward a horizontal relationship of learning with one another. Um, so there's a lot of emphasis here well, on dialogical practice. Well, it's an incredible practice. book. I mean, really extraordinary and in a good way, very dense. I mean, this is not a, a short book. <laughs> I, this is a, a, a tangent, but you've talked a lot about Paulo Freire. Was Ivan Illich of use to you in your work or not? Um, somewhat, main, mainly in terms of this term conviviality. Um, one, one of the strands that comes from liberation theology is a commitment to engendering liveliness. To what? To engendering liveliness, mm -hmm. to paying attention to what brings um, a community, a neighborhood, uh, a person alive. You know, mm -hmm. So it's not all about... Um, oppression is mm -hmm. also about vivacity, and I think Illich was on to mm -hmm. that. Because when I look through this book, and just to give our listeners a sense of it, the first whole section is called Compass Points, and the first section of that says, Beyond Universal's Local Regeneration, Inadequacy of Current Psychological Models, Redawing disciplinary boundaries, practices of assisted regeneration. And then there's the example of uh, Maya women in Guatemala, the Green Belt Movement in Kenya, the dynamics of liberatory work, symbolic interruptions. Then the second section within the first one is on beyond ideology dialogue. And this is where you have this guy, Martin Barrow. Uh, that you spoke of as at the heart of liberation psychology and his radical proposals, the call to liberation psychologies, marginalization and liberalization, colonialism as an institution and structural metaphor. Then beyond development, liberation. And it talks about those things. Interestingly, brings in engaged Buddhist critiques. Uh, and um, then the whole second big part is on psychic wounds of colonialism and globalization. And the third big part is on springs for creative restoration and then participatory practices of liberation. And um, that's the, the final big part. 
So what struck me is, this is really an extraordinary book, is that you have had these large topical headings, and then you have drawn on a whole set of different experiences from liberation uh, psychologies to depth psychology, um, and, um, and created this immensely dense, in a good sense, dense uh, piece of work. I just opened at random what Robert Lifton calls the Auschwitz mm. self, allowed a doctor to adopt to and accomplish his genocidal tasks, while his prior self allowed him to see himself as a caring physician, husband, and father. I was, by the way, the recording secretary for the Wellfleet Psychohistorical oh, really? Conferences wow. with Eric Erickson, wow. Kai Erickson, Robert Lifton, Kenneth Keniston, wow. I wish I'd and been Philip there. Reeve. Wow. And um, I did that for two or three summers. Oh, beautiful, really. yeah, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. No, Lifton, Lifton taught me a lot. And that, that book on Nazi doctors has really come back into my mind recently as I work on the psychology of the enslaver his relationship to those he enslaves, and then his going back into the plantation house, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's not, it's not mm -hmm. so very different. And then I'm going to do this with each of the books. Uh, this Up Against the Wall, which you did with your husband, uh, Edward Casey. And this is all about the Mexican uh, border. And it's uh, part one is reviewing La Frontera, borders versus boundaries. And this was, we, we divided the book into two parts. His, yeah. The first four chapters are his. The first four, the first four chapters were written by him and the last four by me. Okay. And then looking both ways at the border. And as you said, his was more about place mm -hmm. and yours was more about people. Um, and one of the chapters is Juan Crow, the American ethno-racial caste system and the criminalization of Mexican migrants. Um, so an extraordinary book uh, and, and deeply relevant to, this is what the world is about now. Mm. It's, you know, the largest number of displaced people in human history trying to find places to survive. One thing I'd like to bring up about this book, about that, um, is at a certain point, I had learned enough about the border situation that I returned to Santa Barbara. And when I looked at the history of Santa Barbara, I could see the progressive sliding into place of, of boundaries, borders, fences um, between different groups of people. Um, that it, you know, first... Um, there was, of course, taking the Native Americans into the mission system. Um, but then later, we, we had a very vibrant Chinatown in Santa Barbara, and then the Chinese were excluded. And then we had a very vibrant Japanese community, and they were put onto the train, um, taken to the, to the camps. Um, there was a very vibrant Latino community right at the time of the Depression, and social workers um, counseled Latinos, even Latinos who had citizenship, that if they went to Baja, they would be given land 
sounds like 40 acres and a mule um, of their own so that they would survive the depression better. And they were put onto boxcars, taken to Baja, and of course there was no land. And then they were uh, prevented from coming back up. So the, the, the border at, at the, na the national border at, at Mexico is like a reverberation really of all these borders within our cities and towns. You know, I think to be able to try to work on the situation at both ends is really, really important. Mm -hmm. So talk to us a little bit about mutual accompaniment and the creation of the commons. How would you describe what you were intending? This was, this was like a love book because mm -hmm. I took um, many people who had really inspired me in my life. Mm -hmm. Dorothy Day, Jane Addams, Paul Farmer, um, and, and uh, Bassaglia in Italy, etc., and recognized in what they were doing um, their contribution to this idea of accompaniment and both the, the value of it, but also how, how it could be useful in situations. Um, so... Um, I have several chapters about working with seriously um, with people who have been diagnosed with serious mental illness because that was a really large part of my earlier life. And I had been really moved by people like R.D. Lang um, and Bessaglia who, who took that on right, in, in their own ways. So I, I sort of fell in love with the word accompaniment as it came out of liberation theology means to, to break bread with another, to, to be a friend, a compañero, um, and try to, to, to show how a shift from a kind of expert-driven model of mental health and, and also community work um, could be made to what I call mutual accompaniment. And mm -hmm. the mutual there is really important. My editor at Yale University Press wanted me to take it out. Um, but the, the secret of accompaniment is that it can begin um, with a kind of one-sidedness where you think you're going to give some kind of aid or help or whatever. But if you're actually entering into accompaniment, you're entering into a deep relationship and it becomes mutual. There's something that you, you are gaining also through that relationship. Well, your opening quote... Uh -huh. is from the Aboriginal activist group in Queensland, Australia. Mm -hmm. If you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. Mm -hmm. But if you have come here because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. Yes. So that's where the mutual accompaniment yes. comes. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, interestingly, uh, the one chapter that you didn't write is uh, by G.A. Bradshaw on non-human animal accompaniment. Uh-huh. Why did you include that? Okay, so um, I met Gay at Pacifica. She was a student, um, although she already had a PhD in mathematics and mm. um, was a student of linguistics. And um, she she began to approach me at a certain point, could we write some things together? And she began an incredible um, animal sanctuary and and initiated what's called transspecies psychology. 
So she has now a, a center called Kurlo Center for Nonviolence in Jacksonville, Oregon, that's uh, a sanctuary for animals that have come from terrible circumstances and is also uh, a Buddhist learning community around um, creating relationships across species borders. So I, I contemplated at first writing something about it, but um, I don't have that much lived experience mm. with creatures um, other than my many children and <laughs> mm -hmm. husband. Um, and I felt like it, it belongs, belonged in the book because, again, trying to break open some of the ways that we put fences around what makes us who we are. Um, we don't want to leave out the fact that we're creature among creatures, right? Mm. And that there are these possibilities of retrieving the capacity to, to be with and alongside mm. animals other than human animals. Yeah, so I, I thought she did a beautiful job. Mm. And we've yeah, that's a remarkable book. So what are you working on now? Okay. Um, I'm working on a book called White Work, um, radical Genealogy and Racial Reparations. And uh, each of my books has taken about seven years. Um, and I'm, so I'm in year two of this book, mm -hmm. but I have an outline. Mm -hmm. um, and essentially, um, I'm taking Paulo Freire's idea of a pedagogy and saying, you know, the pedagogy needs to be for, not only for the oppressed, but for those um, who have a lot of power, privilege, um, so what is a pedagogy for non-poor white people in the U.S. look like? Um, and part of that is, is taking Martine Burroughs' idea seriously that we begin with historical memory in order to understand who we are. And so for me, that means going back six or seven generations um, to how my family was involved here on Turtle Island, um, which involves... Um, chattel slavery, enslaving people, as well as um, native genocide. So I'm trying to um, use a few, a few ancestors as kind of windows into different historical periods when something very major happened, like um, when we cooked up the idea that we were white and why we did that. When we cooked up the idea that it was okay to enslave a person as long as you gave them room to have spiritual freedom. You know, that there was this possibility of separating spiritual from physical freedom, um, et cetera. So working toward repair, um, mm -hmm. chapters I haven't gotten to yet. When you think of this phase of your life um, from a spiritual point of view, um, what is your own inner work like now? Hmm. Well, I've been working with my ancestors. Um, and that's not, you know, altogether pleasant work. Um, I've been visiting my father's grave in Memphis and speaking with him about, about these things. I, I, I was brought up without any knowledge of this history in my family. So uh, I don't know if my father had the knowledge and he didn't pass it on or he didn't know either. Um, 
So I've been trying to, to, to learn practices of speaking with the ancestors. Um, part of what brought me into Hillman's work was I had a really deep relationship with the imaginal in my late adolescence that uh, kind of opened that, that possibility. So I'm, I find myself going back to some of those practices to try to um, speak with these people about what they did and um, how they might have seen things. Uh, so that's, that's part of it. And, um, and I'm in a group of, of white women um, who have some wealth, some inherited, some through the dint of their own efforts, who are dealing with the issue of how do you, how do you begin to understand the, um, the return on divestment? So we talk about return on investment, but what's the return on divestment in terms of increasing one's sense of belonging to the wider community than one's own circle or family? Um, and that's a pretty spiritual process. <laughs> visiting your father's grave and talking with him and other ancestors, what is your view of whether the soul survives death and whether we can be in actual dialogue? Or is your view that these are imaginal constructs and intra-psychic uh, that you are in dialogue with? Well, I kind of keep the door open there. Um, I'm not convinced either way. You're what? I'm not convinced either way. I think, um, I think that there are things I can learn um, by putting myself close, close to their graves. I've been, in, I've been impressed by that with my father. I can be like... Um, five miles away, knowing I'm going to his grave, uh, and I already feel it, you know. And he's buried in a, in a place where I only have to walk 10 or 20 feet till I am related to 30 or 40 people around me. I don't, I don't know all of them, but I recognize their names. Quite a few of your ancestors were Quakers. Well, I had no idea they were, um, but it turns out that from 1660 to, to when the Quakers outlawed, um, enslaving people. So for that hundred years, I had Quakers on both sides of my family, and they, on both sides, they enslaved people. How far back did your family go in this country? 1608, um, Henry Watkins, also the name of my, my father, um, came um, to Jamestown and helped to chart the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, and in that little narrative, um, he killed a Native American who fell off his boat and who fell off the boat and drowned. So right from the right from the get go, he um, you know he's part of the story. And but his his son became a Quaker, and his daughter and one of his sons became Quakers also. So mm. there's that story on that side. What have I not asked you that <laughs> you would like to say or talk a little about before we close? Well, you've been so generous with your questions. You've been so generous with your ah, questions. Thank you. Wonderful. Kira, do you have any? I don't have any questions, but I, I have a reflection. Um, I'm just really interested in the way that 
the numinous quality of a word yeah. can can come in yeah. and how it lands and how it motivates and how it inspires. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's a couple of things. One is the Sufi group that I have been involved with, uh, They the three words that they chose, I guess people choose three words, but the, the three words that they chose were love, harmony, and beauty. Mm-hmm. And I was just comparing how the word harmony lands versus justice. You know, um, these words are so important, the way they land in our psyche and Mm -hmm. the way they land in our spirit and our body. Um, So that was interesting to me. The other piece is when you first told a story about the Irish and English people who, uh, what did you say that they, they... they called people who came strangers and and didn't and there was a law about the strangers not being able to stay that was in the US in yeah. the US yeah okay and i was comparing that to some of the other cultures that i know of the sufi the sufi community but also a lot of the indigenous cultures who you know they don't use the word stranger so much they they use the word guest yes and the difference between the word guest and stranger and just, yes, you know, this sort of sacred hospitality piece that I think just influences all of us, you know, that sort of saturates our idea of what a migrant is. And uh, so anyway, that was what all of the conversation was yes. <laughs> doing for me. Yes, yeah, yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, I actually feel like I- I've been a tracker of a few different words one of them was liberation. Like when I, like the word began to be almost numinous for me and trying to track, track it. Yeah. <laughs> and then that happened again with accompaniment. Um, just trying to see where, where did it show up? When did it show up? What, what, what meaning did it hold for people? Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think it was Bishop Tutu who talked about, um, when he was speaking about Ubuntu, he says in, in his experience that you would, if a person came you didn't know, you, you invite them in and you yeah. give them food and welcome, mm-hmm. you know? Right. right, as a guest. You know, Mary, it, it occurs to me that I, I'm just testing an idea here. Um, there are obviously completely secular people who believe that the world is material and consciousness is an outgrowth, a a random result of evolution just happened to happen. Uh, It's it's an epiphenomenon of the material world. And then on the other hand, as we know, there are those who hold that consciousness is primary and the material world, it's all energy, it's consciousness is primary. Um, And then at a a more um, at a different level uh, there are religious people there are spiritual but not religious people secular and so on it seems to me that a lot of the people who land in philosophy are not all that interested in spiritual right. stuff um And I'm fascinated. See, I believe that all of these avenues are 
equal and authentic. That's mm -hmm. my point of view. Yes. And so I don't privilege one over the other, not yeah. even remotely. Yeah. I don't privilege spiritual at all over purely secular material. Uh -huh. You know, it's all. My theory is, by their fruit shall you know them. Yes. If people are kind to each other, yeah. if they're wise in their engagement with the world, mm -hmm. if they try to be of service, those three things, kindness of heart, wisdom, service, that does it for me. However they get there yes. is up to them. Yes. That's my point. Yes, of view. I agree. But is it your experience, since you're married to a philosopher and <laughs> since you have, are a psychologist, or um, that... Um, that um, there tends to be that dichotomy between those who are philosophically oriented and those who are spiritually oriented. Or is that not true? Well, so it might not I, be true. I can think of exceptions. Yeah. Yeah, so I think it depends where the person has come from. Um, you know, I think there are some Jewish philosophers like Derrida that really bring some of the deepest aspects of Judaism into their work. Um, I agree. There are definitely exceptions. Yeah. I'm not even sure it's a question. Of, I may be just totally wrong about this. I just, I, I find that the philosophical mindset, I mean, look at Plato, after all. He was both a philosopher and engaged with spirit. Yes, yes. But Aristotle, by contrast, is philosopher and naturalist, but yeah. not so engaged in the spirit. Yeah, yeah. I think you're generally right, mm. um, particularly as analytic philosophy, you know, has gained ground, yeah, et cetera. Whole, yeah. 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 But I like your three words, um, service. Yeah, love, love wisdom, and wisdom. service. Or love, uh -huh. wisdom, and justice. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. to me, justice is pretty fundamental and is an expression of service. Yes. Well, Mary Watkins, uh, author of Up Against the Wall, <laughs> a reimagining of the U.S.-Mexico border with her husband, the philosopher Edward Casey, author of Towards Psychologies of Liberation with Helene Schulman, author of Mutual Accompaniment and the Creation of the Commons, and author of uh, numerous other uh, articles and several other books, Thank you for being with us at the New School at Commonweal and the Omega Resilience Project. Thank you for speaking yeah. with me. <laughs> A great joy. Thank you. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Mary Watkins and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. Our theme music was performed by Debbie Daly. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening. Water could feel my body. Water feel my soul.